My name is Julia Swig. The title of the book is Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. The book covers Lady Bird Johnson's years in the White House primarily. It's bookended by two assassinations and is based upon the vast amount of material that she left behind through her recorded audio diaries and documentation in American archives. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Julia Swig, an award-winning author of books on Cuba, Latin America, and American foreign policy. Currently, though, she's a senior research fellow at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. Julia Swig is author of Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Tell us about this treasure trove of Lady Bird Johnson diaries from her White House years. Where is it kept, and and were you the first scholar to to write about it? Thanks for having me, Bob. Um, The material was created by Lady Bird Johnson herself while she was in the White House. I like to think of her as the first White House podcaster because she recorded an audio diary using reel-to-reel tape, starting with her description of her experience on November 22nd, 1963, in Dallas, mm-hmm. of the JFK assassination, and going all the way through January 1969, the aftermath of Richard Nixon's inauguration and the two LBJs, Lady Bird and Lyndon's, returned to the ranch in Texas. The material itself is housed at the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, both the audio and the transcript. And to answer your question, I am not the first scholar to draw from this material, but I think I am the first scholar to draw so heavily from the full unredacted scope of it. It's 123 hours of audio, 1,750,000 words. And so, and, and that material had not been fully released to the public until between 2013 and 2016 or 17, which tracks with the period of my work and writing. Why did you make this leap from uh, writing about Cuba and Latin America to to focusing on American history? I love that question. Thank you for asking it, Bob. I was schooled during the geopolitics of the Cold War and very interested in American foreign policy and the asymmetry of power dynamics between the United States and principally Latin America, and worked in that field both as a writer and author and practitioner and policy analyst for many, many years. But I just got to the point where I felt like intellectually I needed to make that leap from Latin American politics and history to American politics and history. I needed to teach myself something new, number one. But number two, specifically, after working in foreign policy for so many years and having experienced a very decided gender imbalance, often being the only woman in the room. I wanted to write about the topic of women and power, but I didn't have a subject. And then I found my subject in Lady Bird Johnson. Why did she keep a diary? She says, or she said what 
she published, I should tell your listeners that in 1970, she published a, a redacted version of these diaries, although 787 pages. So she published quite a bit of them, although to my mind, most of the most interesting material wasn't released until the last few years. She says that she kept a diary because she realized, I suppose, with the assassination, that she was present for an incredibly unique period in American history, and she wanted to record it. She wanted to do that for herself, for her kids, for her grandkids, she said. But I think also, you know, Lady Bird was trained as a journalist and historian at mm -hmm. UT in the 1930s, and so her impulse was to document. She was a very uh, avid documenter. She had these little spiral notebooks with her all the time. She kept shorthand notes that helped, were really kind of the building blocks of Lyndon Johnson's political operation. So by the time she gets to that day of November 22, 1963, she's, she's already sort of acutely aware of her place in history, but then the assassination and the way it catapults the Johnsons into the White House leaves her, I think, with this awareness that, that she ought to document it more rigorously. And she mm -hmm. does so. And then she talks about the discipline of trying to keep up with this commitment while having this public role as First Lady and this private role as LBJ's go-to on so many things. And also the last thing she says, and I love this, and it's really clear in the diary, is that she loves words. And you can really hear that when you listen to her and read it, when you read the transcripts, she's a very apt, she's very agile with the English language. Some have portrayed Lady Bird Johnson as a victim of her philandering, powerful husband. Does she talk about LBJ's infidelities in the diaries? Well, indirectly, and that question is, I'm glad you raised it because I think that the focus to date from when Lady Bird shows up in other histories of the LBJ political career and presidency, she is depicted as a woman lacking in agency, as his victim because of his philandering, because of his vulgarity. What I wanted to do was try to add some dimensions to her and to them, not just as a reaction to that focus, but because I think it doesn't serve us in understanding her and them and his presidency. But in any case, she's very elliptical in the diaries. There's one episode that I write about in the book in which a former lover of LBJ's, Helen Gehagen Douglas, a very formidable woman in her own right who had been in the U.S. Congress in the 40s, stays at the White House overnight. This is in 1964. And Lady Bird's way of talking about it gives me a little bit of insight. I don't, I don't think she, I don't, I surmise that she stayed in the White House, not with Lyndon, but separately. But Lady Bird's way of depicting it lets me know that she was fully aware of LBJ's philandering and had a way to compartmentalize that aspect of their marriage. Well, she and LBJ... I mean, they were together a long time, and, and they were, one thing that struck me is that, emphasizing that they were in Washington for years and years and years, and before he became vice president and then 
a president. For example, I believe you say that when Jackie Kennedy came to D.C., didn't Lady Bird kind of show her, the uh, Jackie, the ropes? Yes, she did. I love the story about the Lady Bird-Jackie dynamic. But yes, as you say, she was a Washington animal, the Lady Bird, that is, because they moved to Washington early on in their marriage and had lived there and kept a home in Austin and then bought the ranch in the 50s for 30-odd years before they entered the White House. So I think of Lady Bird as very much a political animal. And when LBJ becomes majority leader in the Senate, that status conveys to Lady Bird. So by the time Jack moves from the House to the Senate, and there's increasing expectation that Jackie participate in some of the political kabuki that is the Washington social scene around politics, Lady Bird brings her in and treats her quite generously, and Jackie's not the political animal Lady Bird is, and Jack writes letters to Lyndon and Lady Bird thanking them for being so nice to Jackie, and over the, until 1960, and even through the 1960 campaign, even though the power dynamics shift when the Johnsons become second fiddle to the Kennedys, Lady Bird is still sort of working, working, working herself to the bone on Jackie's behalf, in the 1960 campaign. So their relationship predates, of course, becoming the assassination and Lady Bird being second lady to Jackie. Let's go way back. Her real name wasn't Lady Bird. It was Claudia Taylor, and then she married Johnson. Right, correct. It was Claudia Alta, Alta Taylor, and her nickname came to her when she was a very young child. She was raised by descendants of enslaved people in East Texas, and her mother died when she was five years old. But before that, she was given by one of her nannies the nickname Ladybird, and it just stuck, and it stuck for her entire life. And then the, the whole family was with those initials. There was Lady Bird, and there was Lyndon Baines, and... And Linda Bird and, and Lucy, Lucy Baines. Baines and Linda Bird. Yes, they were. That was like a, a convenient way to monogram their towels, I suppose. I guess, but it seems like. Well, I'm going to say, I'll <laughs> say it. It seems like kind of a silly thing to do, but then again, maybe it gave him a chuckle or two. I mean, maybe it said, "I wish I knew that," you know. But it's it's become kind of convenient to me because now I like to think of them as the two LBJs. And we know about LBJ and his secret White House tapes. And now we've got the other LBJ and her not-secret White House tapes. And it, it gives them a kind of parody, I would say, P-A-R-I-T-Y, not parody, P-A-R-O-D-Y. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me, I mean, my basic life was in radio broadcasting. And it seems to me that Lady Bird Johnson was the one who made the money in the family. Didn't she use her own money to buy those radio and TV stations that the family owned when owning media outlets like that could be very profitable? Yes, Bob, you're not wrong about that. Well, first of all, she used her family inheritance. From her mother. Her backstory on the family wealth is important. You know, her mother and father were both from Alabama, and her mother, then they were of different social status. Her mother's family had cotton and then timber 
farming and they were very wealthy and her father's family were tenant farmers on her mother's land. And so when they met, it's a little bit of a, you know, cross-class divide that they have to uh, overcome and they elope and they, the two of them leave Alabama and they move to East Texas, to Karnak, Texas. I say that because then Lady Bird's mother dies and she leaves her children, Lady Bird has two older brothers, a great deal of money. So Lady Bird is able then to finance LBJ's first congressional campaign and later in the 1940s to use her money to purchase KTBC, which is a nearly defunct radio station in Austin, Texas. And that is the beginning of this media company that the two LBJs, there's my term again, are involved in in building. And it, it by the time they get into the White House, it's a multi-million dollar company. LBJ uses his 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 clout, his power, his influence, all the things that that today would not be allowed in Washington mm-hmm. D.C. or I hope it wouldn't be to uh, finagle the FCC license in a way that gives them a kind of monopoly control over the airwaves in that part of Texas, and then makes other moves to also cut out other competitors. And Lady Bird is, you know, the, uh, I'm going to stop myself and say the story about the degree of her involvement in managing the business won't ever be fully told because those records are sealed. It's a private business uh, space of the LBJ family. So neither I nor any historian I know has been able to go deeper than to say it looks pretty clear that she was very involved in developing the business, but who did what when and proportion and emphasis is a little bit harder to, to assign value to. And, and these stations were in Austin, or where were they in Texas? Yeah, they were in Central Texas. They started in Austin and then grew, and it was radio and then television as well. So I can't remember at this moment the exact date when they acquired KTBC TV, but mm-hmm. um, I do know that jumping up ahead into the 1960s, when they were catapulted into the White House, at that time in 1963, at least they already had the television station. I think they acquired it in the 50s. When they were in the White House, the two LBJs, you write, LBJ would hand her the phone. I mean, he's he's on the phone cajoling somebody, and he just hands it to Lady Bird. What was that all about? Well, you asked, like, you're surprised. But, you know, you, you can also see it. They did it at the ranch, too. Lady Bird was often his... You know, they had a, you could say, good cop, bad cop, you know, that he was the bully and she was the sweetheart, or that they were just mutual participants in what we think of as the Johnson treatment. She, because of her business activities, for example, in the media space, she thought of herself as a media executive. So there's this one passage in the book that maybe you're thinking of right after they take office where it's. December of 1963, they're still wearing their their morning clothes and the country is still in mourning. And they're on the phone, passing the phone back and forth, talking to the head of CBS, the head of ABC, and telling them, and and the work that they're doing together is LBJ drawing upon Lady Bird's kind of witty, flattering, almost saccharine, but substantive way of talking. And I think that, and I say that because 
that Johnson treatment that we associate with LBJ, you know, that capacity to mm-hmm. manipulate and bully and ident- and get bring somebody on board to your own project, mm-hmm. that's a ladybird skill as well. She doesn't do it with the kind of, um, you know, big footing that LBJ is associated with, but I think he involved her because she was so effective. In terms of her influence, you uh, write about, uh, I believe it was a memo she did in May of 1964 when um, LBJ's trying to decide whether to run for office that year, which he ultimately ran and he won in a landslide. But she wrote a remarkably prescient memo about that. Yes, she did. And it's an aspect of her material in the LBJ library that I think has, along with the audio, diary has been largely kind of overlooked or at least underplayed if played at all by other historians. It's a memo that she wrote on May 14th of 1964. Now this is just there in the office, in office barely five months and LBJ is looking ahead as you say to the 1964 presidential election. He doesn't have a vice president. He is deeply insecure about whether he can win, well, not so much as if he can win, but whether he can keep the country united. Because this is a moment when the civil rights legislation is stuck in the Senate. It's a moment when the pressure from Vietnam, over Vietnam, from the Kennedy team that he kept on board is growing for him to escalate. And when he and she can see that that the Vietnam dimension might well derail their domestic agenda, which is very, very substantial. So he asks Lady Bird to write out the pros and cons for him of running or not running. She does this, and she also even drafts a statement for him where he would announce to the country that he's not going to run. And he does this, she does this so that he can digest and feel what that would feel like to take himself out of the arena. But she advises him to run, and she says, if you run, you'll very likely win. And then in February or March of 1968, you can announce that you won't be running for a second term. Wow. And of course, we all know that on March 31st, 1968, LBJ surprises everybody but Lady Bird and a couple of other people in announcing that he will not run again. Uh, let me just say that that memo when I looked at it against then all of the other material in her diaries showing her implementing her strategy of getting him out after just one term reinforced to me her standing as somebody that he did really rely upon for the arc of his presidency and the strategy for making it manifest. She was an important player on the team. In fact, before Hubert Humphrey wasn't she regarded as the unofficial vice president? One of our um, podcast episodes is called Mrs. Vice President. That's the podcast that we did for ABC News. We called it that, Mrs. Vice President, because as you say, in 1964, so until the inauguration in January of 65, there is no vice president for LBJ, and Lady Bird winds up taking on a lot of the ceremonial duties that a vice president otherwise would, and the female press corps, and of course she's traveling, promoting the war on poverty, promoting the great society. She's very much out in front in the public eye. 
helping to consolidate LBJ's standing in the White House and with the American public. So the traveling press corps who travels with her, mainly women, start calling her Mrs. Vice President, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it, 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 it resonates a little bit with the role she was playing at the time and her relationship with him. She's remembered for highway beautification. There was an underlying agenda that she had for that that was more um, attuned to the environmental movement. Correct. That word, beautification, always bothered her because, I mean, it's a little bit like Lady Bird, the nickname, right? It's a, it's a euphemism. It's very feminized, in, and it doesn't speak to her substance and her gravitas. And around environmentalism, beautification, well, highway beautification, but even planting flowers in Washington, D.C. and beautifying one's environment was just the beginning and just kind of, I think of it as the ornamental component of what was really a fundamental environmental agenda, which really makes itself felt, although I think in the end, the White House never did a very good job at telling the public what it really was for lots of different reasons. But it was really about, and we see this in Washington, D.C., trying to bring together environmental justice with civil rights and with basic citizen participation. And so she put together a really interesting team of individuals from her perch in the East Wing of radical civil rights philanthropists and California landscape architects and activists and politicians in Washington, D.C. to try to work in the most underserved, impoverished neighborhoods of Washington, D.C. to desegregate access to nature and recreation. She believed, and this goes back to the loss of her mother, that access to nature and the solace that human beings can find in nature is really vital to our humanity. And especially in American cities in the wake of these kind of dehumanizing urban renewal projects all over the country in the 40s and 50s, she wanted to make cities livable for the most underserved members of uh, citizens of those cities, most of whom at the time were, were people of color, still are. As the Johnson administration goes on, Vietnam, the Vietnam War becomes more and more large and violent. I mean, how yes. did she handle that and the protest movement that was uh, engendered by the war? Well, I think she, on on Vietnam, had all of the blinders and biases that Lyndon Johnson himself did. It's really the case that, although she could sniff early on that this would become an albatross for him, I don't see until the end of 1967 that the protest movement, the anti-war movement, really started to shift her way of thinking about it. I mean, I think they talked about it all the time, but largely, and you see this sort of starting with the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, straight through the end of 67, it's really not till the end of 67 that she begins to shift her thinking about Vietnam. Before that, like LBJ, you know, she feels some commitment to Saigon, the, the geopolitics of the Cold War, and um, 
she even has this kind of Wilsonian idea that, you know, if we could bring electrification to Texas, why not to the Mekong Delta? You know, this, this, this idea that you can subject the American project to a country half the world, the way, the world around, away. In 1967, wasn't she drowned out at her college speeches by protesters? Well, yeah. So she takes a trip to New England in 1967 for the purpose of promoting environmental studies at Williams College and Yale. Both are inaugurating some of the country's first environmental studies programs. And she is invited to participate in those, uh, you know, to sort of sprinkle her fairy dust on those, the ideas underlying these efforts. But she goes up there and she's totally drowned out by the anti-war protests it really hits home. And she then comes back to Washington. This is October of 67. And the march on, not the march on Washington, the, the 1967 protest at the Pentagon, which is the largest anti-war mobilization yet, is right here in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I think those two moments, plus the fact that both Linda, that Lucy is already married to somebody who will go to Vietnam, and Linda is engaged to a Marine captain that's going to deploy, that starts to bring the war closer to home and begins her shift of realizing that they really can't stay in the White House with uh, and get out of the war at the same time. That they need to, they want to try to bring an end to the war they need to take themselves out of politics. Now, that's not what happens, right? They take themselves out of politics, but LBJ's continues to really escalate throughout 1968. After leaving the presidency, within a relatively short number of years, LBJ will die, but uh, Lady Bird lived for a long time after her husband died. That's right. She lives until he dies in 1973, she lives until 2007. So she is alive, I believe, for almost as long after he dies that they, they two were married together. So she has a very some... long life once Lyndon is gone. And she spends most of it with her kids and grandkids and focusing on the environmental issues that she cared about when she was in the White House. I'm sure you're uh, aware that there's another there's another new book out about another first um, lady. I'm looking for my note on it. I can't find it right now. But they have oh, a that's new... Karen Tumulty's book about Nancy Reagan. Right, and so I mean we've got. Well, I, I haven't really seen any coverage of that in, in, in detail, but I w wonder maybe we'll have more attention paid to these first ladies. Well, I think more attention is good, but I think a different kind of attention is really important and that what we're all trying to do, and I mean, I'm not a first lady historian, but I'm a, a, a historian and a, a writer, and I think what we want to try to do is properly evaluate the role of the, the first partner in the White House, which has typically been either, you know, diminished or in Lady Bird's case, treated as victim or just as, you know, kind of oddball in other cases. Uh, I think the, the, the idea of partnership in the White House is an important one. So I'm glad to see these new treatments coming out. 
Let me ask you again, you've alluded to it several times, about the um, the podcast you're doing. Was that your idea, or did somebody have to talk you into it? Nobody talked me into it, Bob. No, because this was my idea, and I'll tell you the genesis of it, because we have all this audio where one can hear Lady Bird's incredibly captivating voice, right? She's got this East Texas accent. She's got a knack for what one person described to me as word pictures. She's very good with language, and she's just often very riveting to listen to. Julia Swig is author of Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. It's published by Random House. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you, Bob. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.